The case information provided during this program includes details of violent criminal acts and may upset, shock, and offend some listeners. Any named suspects should be considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. On a beautiful summer day in the middle of August 1996, a young girl was left home alone while her dad went to work. By the time he returned several hours later, she was gone. On the day she went missing, Trudy Appleby was 11 years old and still enjoying her summer break from school. The search for Trudy has lasted 24 years. She is still not home, but police believe they're getting closer to the truth as to what happened to her that day. This is True Crime Takedown, and I'm your host, Troy Daniels. Before Trudy Appleby went missing, she had been living with her dad, Dennis Appleby, in Moline, Illinois. When Trudy first moved into her new neighborhood, she was just a little girl. Kelly Carlson still lives in that neighborhood, and she runs the Facebook group, Missing Trudy Appleby. Kelly's daughter, Amber, ended up being best friends with Trudy. I had a chance to talk with Kelly Carlson and asked her about her first meeting with Trudy Appleby. Trudy Appleby was my neighbor girl, and she was best friends with my oldest daughter, Amber. Um, I met Trudy shortly after we moved into this house. I found her playing out in my yard, and I opened the door, and she said, do you have any kids? And the rest was history. She was over here every day. I don't remember how old she was specifically when we met her, but I remember the day she disappeared like it was yesterday. Since Kelly Carlson's daughter, Amber, was such close friends with Trudy, Kelly ended up getting to know Trudy really well. Trudy was, she was sharp as a tack. She was very smart. I remember her dad wanted to put her in a gifted program. She was that smart. Um, She was real, real outgoing, real outgoing and friendly. She just, she just loved everybody. She loved little kids and babies and, and dogs. And she was just a real pistol. I mean, she just was always skipping and jumping and rollerblading and playing. She was just really, really something special. Trudy was over at Kelly and Amber's house the night before she went missing. She was at our house the night before. And she was playing and, you know, hanging out with my kids and rollerblading outside she went home about eight o'clock and my daughter would walk her home. They had a little ritual and she told us before she left, I'll see you guys tomorrow. I'll call you in the morning. I'll see you tomorrow. And the next morning came and we didn't, she didn't call. She didn't come by. Trudy's dad, Dennis Appleby had gone to work that morning at about 9 AM. When he returned from work at about noon, Trudy wasn't home. Trudy's dad, Dennis, started looking for Trudy, and one of the first places he checked was at Kelly and Amber's house. They told Dennis that they had not heard from Trudy and that Trudy never picked up any of Amber's calls to Trudy's house that morning. I remember my daughter telling me that Trudy's dad was looking for her because he got home from work and she wasn't home. We had not seen her all day. Nobody had heard from her. My daughter didn't talk to her that morning, even though she'd tried to call 
several times and nobody would pick up the phone. And my daughter told me, she goes, I think something's wrong, Mom. I think somebody's got Trudy. As that afternoon becomes evening, those who know and love Trudy become extremely scared about what may have happened to her. The neighbors were panicking. Her parents were panicking, Every, you know, because she was only 11. Where could she have gone? Police began their investigation by questioning everyone who would have most likely seen Trudy or had any contact with her. Her parents were divorced and Trudy had been living with her dad, Dennis. Both Dennis Appleby and her mom, Brenda Edelman, were given polygraph tests and the Hawkeye newspaper reported that police confirmed that they both passed. Numerous searches occurred throughout her neighborhood and the city of Moline. There were lots of police interviews and and I've had the, you know, the police over here to our house in the neighborhood. We went down to the police station several times trying to remember anything that might be helpful from, you know, the previous few days. Trudy had been grounded for about three weeks. So we were trying to think of anything that she might have said or anything she might have done, any strangers we might have seen around, and nothing, nothing. We searched and searched and passed out flyers, and there were plenty of rumors flying around, plenty of rumors. Well, when she first disappeared, we didn't have social media, and we didn't have cell phones, and, you know, um, people barely had computers and email. We... uh we made flyers, hundreds and hundreds of flyers. I made 200 copies at my, at my job. And we, we went on foot and we handed out flyers to businesses, to houses. Uh, people went for miles just walking around handing out flyers. Police learned from a neighbor that Trudy was seen getting into the backseat of an older model gray or silver four-door vehicle at about 10.30 a.m. that morning. She was last seen wearing black stretch bicycle shorts, a shirt, blue Nike deck shoes with white shoelaces and white socks. The unknown male driver of this gray vehicle was described as being in his 20s with curly brown hair and wearing a baseball cap. It is believed that Trudy brought along swimwear and a beach towel when she left in the car that day, since those were the only items missing from her home. Also, Trudy and her dad were going on vacation really soon, and Trudy had saved up about $200 for the trip. When Trudy's house was searched, it was learned that Trudy had not taken her vacation money with her that morning. Since Trudy had been grounded, it was first thought that maybe she'd run away. However, with her vacation money still at home, this led authorities to place more weight on her being abducted rather than running away. Through the years, leads poured into the department and police conducted numerous interviews. Thorough searches were completed of the nearby Mississippi riverbanks and local islands with some of those searches using cadaver dogs. Despite all the efforts, the case remained unsolved. In 2015, which is about 19 years after Trudy was first reported missing, Detective Michael Griffin from the Moline Police Department was assigned as the lead detective on the case. I had the opportunity to get an overview from Detective Griffin on this gut-wrenching investigation. On August 21st, 1996, um, Dennis Appleby called the Moline Police Department and reported his 11-year-old daughter, Trudy, missing. He had come home from work. She wasn't home. She was supposed to be there. Uh, he did the normal routine, calling the family friends or family members, friends of hers, acquaintances, trying to find out where she could be. Once uh, he couldn't locate her at any of the obvious places, he contacted the police for assistance. Um, the investigation showed that uh, Trudy... Um, 
left that day, got in a silver box type car and left the area. We do know that she took with her um, items to go swimming. And um, due to those circumstances, we believe that uh, Trudy had uh, made arrangements with another friend of hers to go swimming on with her on Campbell's Island. Um, this other friend is the same age as Trudy and her dad is an acquaintance of Trudy's dad. Um, Trudy had asked her dad for permission to go swimming. Um, he stated no, she couldn't go swimming because she'd been grounded. And uh, we believe she went anyways. Um, we believe she uh, likely went with the intent of trying to get home before her dad got home. And he'd be none the wiser that she had went swimming against his will. It was August 17, 2017, about 21 years since Trudy disappeared when Detective Griffin started to release more details about what police believe happened to Trudy and the identity of a person of interest who may have some connection to this case. The press release from the Moline Police Department stated, quote, on the days leading up to August 21st, 1996, Trudy Appleby requested to go swimming with a friend who resided on Campbell's Island in East Moline. Trudy's father did not allow her to go swimming, but phone records show she may have planned to go ahead with her swimming plans, unquote. Campbell's Island is one of the small islands in East Moline in the Mississippi River and close to where Trudy's family lives. I asked Detective Griffin to explain what phone records led them to believe that she was going swimming that day. We know that they called, uh, she called time and temperature, which back then, there's a number you could call to give you the time and temperature for the day. Uh, we also know that she called the friend on the phone, the friend's residence on the phone from one landline to another. This Moline Police Department press release went on to say that the witness saw a person believed to be Trudy Appleby in the passenger seat of a vehicle on Campbell's Island in the mid to late morning hours the day she was missing. This would fit into the timeline of when it is believed that Trudy was missing from her home. The witness stated that the vehicle passed within a couple feet of him and the vehicle was driven by William Ed Smith, who police were naming in the press release as a person of interest. The witness saw this vehicle when it was near Smith's house on Campbell's Island. WQAD8 reporter Chris Miner also reported that the police released information that the witness told police that Smith was seen later that day, but that Trudy was no longer with them, and the witness did not see Trudy again. The witness reported that Smith threatened to kill him if he ever told police about seeing Trudy Appleby with him on August 21st, 1996. So let's take a closer look at William Ed Smith, who died in 2014, about three years before police named him as a person of interest. Smith lived in the 500 block of Homestead Avenue on Campbell's Island. This is about six miles from where Trudy was picked up by the gray vehicle. To get from Trudy's house to Smith's house is about a 15 minute car trip and requires crossing over the Mississippi River to get to Campbell's Island. Police stated in the press release that Smith never admitted any knowledge about Trudy's disappearance before he died. So, who was the witness that gave police the information that Trudy was last seen with Smith in a vehicle on Campbell's Island on the morning she ended up missing? David Whipple, who was a son-in-law of Smith's at the time of the disappearance, was interviewed on August 18, 2017, one day after Smith was identified as a person of interest by police. 
WQAD 8 reporter Chris Miner interviewed David Whipple on camera. Whipple stated that he saw Smith driving a car with what could have been Trudy in the vehicle. Whipple saw William Ed Smith grab two life jackets from a boat before driving off with Trudy. Whipple stated that he told police all he knows and that he believes that someone else knows what happened to Trudy, but he doesn't have any further information to give them. I asked Detective Griffin if Whipple was the witness that identified Smith as being the last one seen with Trudy on the date of her disappearance. During uh, three separate interviews, 2002, 2005, and 2017, uh, Mr. Whipple indicated to the police that he saw Trudy Appleby with Ed Smith in the uh, suspect vehicle. I asked Detective Griffin if during their investigation, police found that either Smith or Whipple had access to a vehicle that matches the description of the vehicle used to transport Trudy away from her home. Yes, they all had access to one, to the same one. They had a... Uh, all shared vehicles, shared property, shared things, so they all had access to it. I asked Detective Griffin what police think happened to that vehicle. Uh, we believe that it was scrapped a few days later. Um, we do have a junk title for it, uh, the, the record to the Secretary of State, so we believe they scrapped that vehicle uh, shortly after. We uh, advised that it was a uh, suspect vehicle in the disappearance. When we examine Whipple's past criminal convictions, the Illinois Child Sex Offender website lists David Whipple as a sexual predator and having a conviction of criminal sexual assault. The site says that Whipple was 35 years old when he sexually assaulted a 10-year-old victim. Based on Whipple's age, that would mean that the sexual assault of a child that he was convicted of occurred in 1995 to 1996, the year that Trudy disappeared and to a victim who is approximately Trudy's age. According to a report by the Quad City Times reporter, Ben Wellner, the Rock Island County Circuit Court electronic records show that Whipple was arrested in August 2002 for that crime and was sentenced on November 8, 2002 for one count of criminal sexual assault. He was given four years probation and 172 days for the time he already served in jail. Since it appeared that the victim of the criminal sexual assault by Whipple was 10 years old in about 1995 or 1996, I asked Detective Griffin if he could confirm the dates of the child sex crime and tell me if Trudy and the victim in Whipple's child sexual assault conviction knew each other. I know it was the late 90s and it was a, a girl about the same age as Trudy. I guess with respect to uh, the sex assault part of it, not not really to the Trudy Appleby investigation part of it. I don't want to say, but but they would have known each other. So, Whipple's child sex conviction did not directly tie to the Trudy Appleby disappearance, even though he was convicted of sexually assaulting a 10-year-old victim during the same period of time that Trudy Appleby disappeared. However, Whipple himself told the Quad City Times that he was a person of interest in Trudy's disappearance from the beginning, and he denied involvement. Whipple also told them that Trudy and his daughter were friends and hung out together often. So what does Whipple say he was doing on the day that Trudy disappeared? According to the Quad City Times reporter, Ben Wellner, Whipple said that he was at home on Campbell's Island and watching his children. He went on to say that his wife was at work. As Whipple said, his home was also on Campbell's Island. It was across the street from Smith's house, his father-in-law. Detective Griffin explained that Whipple's house became condemned and that in October of 2017, 
Police used cadaver dogs to see if the specially trained canines could find the scent of the decomposition of human remains there. It is important to remember that cadaver dogs are not 100% accurate, but they are often successful at finding decomposing human remains. They are often used by police as a tool to help determine if a more thorough search is necessary. A dog gives a trained signal like barking or in police lingo indicates if the dog smells decomposing human remains or a location where human remains used to be. So we found out that the house uh, was condemned and then ultimately uh, demolished and the residents next door bought it to uh, double lot their property. Um, so we took the opportunity to uh, take cadaver dogs out there in October 2018. The cadaver dogs indicated on a specific area of the property, which would have been the bathroom area of where the Whipple residence was. And we dug very deep hole. I think we were probably 10 feet, 15 feet down, uh, but did not locate anything on that property. The August 17, 2017 Moline Police press release also described Smith as often using a boat to get to two smaller islands to the north of Campbell's Island during the time period that Trudy disappeared. These two smaller islands are called Blackbird Island and Dynamite Island. For years, police searched to find the boat that they knew that Smith had access to, but they could not find it. In December 2019, with help from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources and the FBI, police finally seized the boat they were looking for. Um, back when she was reported missing, a family member of uh, Smith and Whipples had uh, bought a new boat. Um, the boat that right after Trudy went missing, the boat then went missing, and the boat was not registered for 10 years through the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Um, you know, as you're familiar, you have to have a whole number and a registration sticker every year for your boat in the state of Illinois. And the boat didn't, the boat had about a 10 or 12 year lapsing in registrations. Um, and then we were able to track it down. Um, the boat was actually seized as part of a uh, uh, IRS investigation, so it was in government property for several years to, uh, during the asset forfeiture proceedings. And then we were able to track it down uh, in early 2017 to a family in Davenport. Uh, we conducted a cadaver dog search on the boat. At that time, the dogs indicated uh, to the odor of human decomposition on the boat. At that time, we didn't know what our next plan was because obviously to uh, thoroughly process a crime scene on a boat, we'd have to dismantle the boat and take it apart. Uh, we didn't feel comfortable doing that at the time um, because it would, we, would, we were going to destroy the boat. Um, kind of monitored the boat. And then in December 2018, um, we took the boat, or December 2019, we took the boat over to uh, the FBI and here in Moline, they bought the boat from a family in Dubuque, Iowa. And we took the boat to the FBI lab in Springfield and processed it. Got about four to 500 swabs of process or uh, DNA um, to process. And we're doing them in batches of 10 at a time out at Quantico. So it's, it's, we're on our third or fourth batch. So it's gonna take, it's gonna take probably several years to get through it. So please patiently wait as the FBI processes through all the hundreds of swabs taken from the boat to look for DNA in the hopes that the results will shed light on Trudy's disappearance. In the meantime, Detective Griffin works hard to keep Trudy's name in the public eye. He does not want the people responsible for her disappearance or the cover-up to get comfortable. 
He uses social media to push information out to the general public, as well as to troll all those responsible for causing pain to Trudy and her family. We've used social media to our advantage. It's a platform of uh, instantaneously delivering uh, messages, delivering information to the public. So we've been very um, forward with our information on this. Uh, we've called the individuals out, um, not by name, but they know who they are. We're very strict, straight with them, talk to them on a level that they probably understand. You know, after 24 years, it's on me and it's on this department to keep Trudy's name relevant. At crimes against children, a lot of people would rather just not think they don't, would rather think they don't occur. They don't occur around here. It's not going to happen here. This is a safe community. So it's our job to keep it relevant, keep her name out there and keep people talking to her about it. And, and that's what we use social media for. Here is just one example of the type of messages that Detective Griffin sends to the people responsible for this tragic crime through social media. It is a Facebook message sent on July 31st, 2018. Quote, to those who are responsible for the disappearance of Trudy Appleby, it's been 8,014 days since we last saw her. For the last 8,014 days, you have been lucky, but you will need to continue to be lucky every day for the rest of your lives. We only need to be lucky one day. Is today that day? We are coming for you, and the truth shall be brought to light, unquote. Detective Griffin has placed all the living persons of interest under surveillance and then put billboards in strategic locations based on how they travel with the goal of making sure that they know that police have not forgotten Trudy and with the hopes of getting information from anyone who knows anything about this case. Um, we've also used billboards. We got billboards donated to us. The suspects that are, or the persons of interest that are alive today, studied them, did surveillance on them. Some people would say stalk them. So we'll go with the legal term of surveillance. Um, but I know their, their patterns of life and their routines. And I found billboards that I know that they'd have to pass by every day. And I put Trudy's uh, face up on a billboard and didn't even have her name. It just said, if you know something, it's time to say something. Hoping for the, uh, the shock factor. Remember, Whipple's ex-father-in-law, Smith, was the first named person of interest in this investigation in 2017. He died three years before being named a person of interest without ever admitting any knowledge as to what happened to Trudy. On August 19th, 2020, the Moline Police Department formally named David Whipple as a person of interest in a press release. As stated before, Whipple is a self-described person of interest and has told reporters that he has told police everything he knows and has denied any knowledge as to what happened to Trudy. That Moline Police press release also named a third person of interest who is a 45-year-old, longtime family friend of Smith's. I asked Detective Griffin why he named these three as persons of interest in the disappearance of Trudy Appleby. We know that they know what happened. Um, we believe that they're, uh, if not part of the crime, which in this case, the crime would be uh, kidnapping and murder. They're at least, we believe they're at least involved in the cover-up. Um, and the reason we got this information is numerous people have talked to us over the years. The people keep coming forward to us. We, we are benefiting from fractured relationships. Um, these type of people, as you can imagine, the type of people that are going to perpetrate crimes against uh, small children aren't the type of people that are, have very successful relationships with others in life. Um, so we, we're benefiting from their fractured relationships. Um, they've dated girls, confided in girls, and then they, they uh, 
break it off with the girls or, or screw the girls over. And, you know, as they say, hell hath no uh, fury like a scorned woman. And, and we're benefiting from those relationships, those those people um, that whether they're work acquaintances, former friends, roommates, they're coming forward and talking to us now and it's helping the case go forward. Detective Griffin explained that the two named persons of interest who are still living and anyone else connected to this terrible crime and cover-up better seriously think about coming forward and helping bring Trudy home to her family. He described a window of opportunity that is closing fast because he is getting closer to solving this case without their help. People that commit crimes against children, they're not, they're not tough guys, you know, so they're, they're, they're not tough. They can't handle it and they're going to crack. And, and, you know, they, if they want to come forward and talk to me and give it up um, and, you know, Trudy's family wants to work out a deal. They just want to bring Trudy home, give her, let her rest in peace where she belongs, um, give her family closure. That's what Trudy wants. Trudy's family doesn't want eye for an eye. They don't even care if they go to prison at this point, but they do want Trudy back. And, and those guys have a op golden opportunity in front of them um, because, but if they wait any longer, this case is going to get solved without them and then they have to deal with the criminal justice system. I asked Detective Griffin to tell me what he thought a likely scenario was of what happened to Trudy Appleby that day. I think she uh, was gonna go swim with a friend. I think that friend's father picked her up because um, she trusted him and he took her out on the island. Um, these guys are predators. You can tell by their uh, publicly available criminal histories, they're predators against children and um, I believe they probably sexually assaulted her is what I believe. I believe they sexually assault. I believe she's uh, victimized. Um, and I'm guessing she reacted in a way that is different than other victims acted uh, when these guys perpetrated their crimes against them. And she either said, I'm going to tell my dad, I'm going to tell the, the authorities. Um, so they did what they had to do to silence them to preserve themselves and their freedom. Detective Griffin has a clear message for anyone who knows anything about this case. It is time to talk. It's time to come forward. This isn't about telling on a neighbor for petty theft or telling on an acquaintance for a, uh, a misdemeanor crime. This is a 24-year-old case involving the homicide of an 11-year-old girl. Uh, anytime a young member of our society, a young resident, is, is violated and victimized, that should shock the conscience of everyone in the community. And we've said it all along, the, the police aren't gonna solve this on our own. We need the community's assistance. Uh, we're very blessed to live and work in a community like Moline in the Quad Cities, where we get, we work well together with our community and the police, and it makes it safer. Um, there's people out there that had something to do with this, victimizing this 11-year-old girl, and they're roaming free right now. And when they're roaming free, if they're able to do this in 1996, I assure you they're able to do this in 2020 and beyond. Uh, we need to work together to bring these guys to justice and to make our community safer and give the Applebee family the closure they need. This is an 11-year-old girl. You know, in, in America, when we die, we get we get celebrated and, and we get placed in a, a burial place where your family can come and, and spend time with you and remember you and and they know where you're at every night um, for the last 24 years and in three days Dennis Appleby hasn't known where his daughter's at at night and I'm asking the community to come together and help us 
help him. Trudy's mom, Brenda, was killed by a drunk driver when she was trying to walk across the street in Moline on October 10, 2014. She went to her grave never knowing what happened to Trudy. Kelly Carlson remembers one of Trudy's mom's biggest fears. Her mother was always worried that people would forget her. And I promised her mother that as long as I was alive, I was going to make sure nobody would forget her. Kelly Carlson also has her own message for those that have information but fail to share it with police. I would like to ask them, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night knowing what you know but not telling anybody? I kind of hope, I kind of hope they don't sleep very well, actually. And I would tell them, if, if you think that this can't happen to someone in your family or someone in your neighborhood, it sure can because it happened in my neighborhood. I, I just don't know how they live with themselves. The um, most important thing is bringing her home and laying her to rest. We just need to, some closure. Her mom's dead. Her grandma's dead. Her grandpa just died. Never knowing what happened to her. And I just don't know how you live with yourself. I just don't. It kind of, it kind of, it kind of pisses me off. Let's briefly summarize what we've been told by police and learned from local news reporters and other sources. Trudy Appleby was left at home alone on August 21st, 1996, when her dad, Dennis Appleby, went to work at about 9 a.m. A neighbor reported that Trudy Appleby came out of her house at about 10.30 a.m. and got into the back seat of a four-door gray or silver vehicle. The driver was an unknown male in his 20s who had brown curly hair and he was wearing a ball cap. When Dennis Appleby returned home about noon, Trudy was gone. David Whipple was a self-described person of interest before police formally called him one. David Whipple lived on Campbell's Island across from his father-in-law, William Ed Smith. Smith was the first named person of interest by Moline police. Whipple told police on several occasions that he saw Trudy Appleby in a vehicle driven by Smith during the mid to late morning that day. According to Whipple, Smith grabbed two life jackets out of a boat and drove off with Trudy. When Whipple saw Smith later that day, Trudy was no longer with him. Smith died in 2014 without ever admitting any knowledge as to what happened to Trudy that day. Six years after Trudy disappeared, Whipple was convicted of the criminal sexual assault of a child that occurred years before when Whipple was 35 and the victim was 10 years old. This means that Whipple was convicted of sexually assaulting a victim near Trudy's age around the same time, 1995 to 1996, that Trudy disappeared. According to police, Trudy knew the victim of the criminal sexual assault that Whipple was convicted of. However, police say the criminal sexual assault conviction was not directly related to Trudy's disappearance. Whipple said that he was at home on Campbell's Island that day watching his children while his wife was at work. Whipple said that his daughter and Trudy were friends and hung out often. Whipple said that he told police everything he knows about Trudy and he does not have anything else he can tell them. Police released information that they believed that Trudy was asking to go swimming in the days leading up to her disappearance and her dad did not allow her to go. Based on phone records, it is believed that Trudy contacted a friend that day to go swimming and that when she left her house that day, she believed she was going swimming. The only things missing from her house were swimwear and a beach towel. 
the $200 that she saved up to go on vacation with her dad was still at home. Police state that all named persons of interest had access to a vehicle that matched the description of the one that Trudy got into that morning. Police believe that vehicle was scrapped a short time after Trudy's disappearance. According to police, the named persons of interest also had access to a boat that was used by them at the time on the Mississippi River near Campbell's Island. For years, police were unable to locate the boat. However, it was eventually found and purchased by the FBI. The boat has been processed and approximately 400 to 500 swabs were taken to determine if there was any DNA evidence from the boat that can shed light on this investigation. The FBI at Quantico is processing these swabs 10 at a time and they are on the third or fourth batch. So it is going to take years to process all of the evidence from this boat. If you have any information on this case, please call the Moline Police Department directly at 309-524-2140. If you want to be anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers of the Quad Cities by phone at 309-762-9500 or by web at qccrimestoppers.com or by using the P3 Tips app. That's the letter P and the number three, P3 Tips. Crime Stoppers of the Quad Cities is offering a reward up to $2,500 for information that leads to locating Trudy Appleby or the arrest of anyone involved in her disappearance. I'd like to thank my former police chief, R.T. Finney, for suggesting this case and for assistance from retired Captain Trevor Fisk. Thanks for listening. You can help us fight crime by joining the True Crime Takedown team through Patreon. You can join the Takedown team by going to truecrimetakedown.com slash team. Our Patreon Takedown team members get exclusive episodes, audio extras, bonus content, and much more. Pictures and sources for this podcast can be found on our website. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime Takedown. Our theme music, The Takedown, is by Mitch Marlowe. We'll be back with a new episode soon. True Crime Takedown is a production of Crime Fighters Media.